Alison. Hi, Sarah, and welcome back. Thanks. So in our time away, you went to the US. Yeah, yeah, finally. First time since the pandemic to go see family there. Um, it was interesting to talk about how France has and is handling the COVID pandemic, mm. you know, here with our confinements, our masks, schools staying open. I mean, it's been a bit different in the U.S. and various parts of the U.S. Every country, of course, has dealt with this differently, and everyone's kind of gotten used to a certain way of doing things. Yeah, so is one thing better than the other? Well, I mean, I think that we're perhaps managing things better here, but then you also realize that what works here in France wouldn't work in the United mm -hmm. States. You know, these cultural differences make it so that we'll accept a lot more being imposed on by authorities. Um, and, and while that makes things easier, you know, day to day. Like cut, cut health passes and things like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Americans just wouldn't accept it. I mean, especially these days. So there you go. Mm -hmm. Um, you ended up going to the UK. Yeah, I went home. Yeah, uh, an awful lot of hoops, admin uh, mm. to get there. Oh gosh, yeah, testing, loads of, yeah, and... testing loads of stuff to <laughs> fill in online, and mm, bit of a pain. But mm. I have to say, it was a good visit. Yeah. Um, and the important thing was to go. Yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> um, anyway, in the last program, you told me, Sarah, that you hoped to live until you were 120. <laughs> yep, 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 that shocked you. <laughs> yeah, it did shock me. I'm still reeling, actually. But um, it's true, we're all living longer, aren't we? Mm -hmm. In the developing world, at least, thanks to better diet and medical progress. But with old age often comes dementia. Mm -hmm. You start forgetting things, you get confused. The most common form of dementia now is Alzheimer's, um, an illness that affects around 200,000 people every year in France. Yeah, and you end up becoming kind of dependent, nearly mm. completely dependent on others. You're unaware of time and place and you often get depressed. Yeah, it's very tough on the carers too, of course, especially if they're family members. Uh, people suffering from Alzheimer's often won't even recognize you in mm. the end. Yeah. Now, the symptoms of Alzheimer's, things like anxiety, depression and insomnia are often treated with medication. But for the moment, there is still no cure for the illness itself. So you're not going to recover from it. No, you're not going to get better. So France, like many other countries with ageing populations, has got to find ways of coping with this growing population. And filling up traditional old people's homes isn't really the answer. Yeah, the first COVID lockdown last year showed really some major problems in these facilities here. Mm in France and definitely made worse with Alzheimer's. Yeah, sometimes people uh, were literally locked up in their rooms. Mm. You know, it was essentially for their own safety so that they wouldn't get infected with COVID. But, you know, they couldn't see their families. And of course, with the most advanced cases, they just had no idea what was going on. Why was this happening? And mm. that just added to the anguish. Now, there are some specialised units in France within nursing homes, which are using some different therapies, animal therapy, music, art, essentially to stimulate the senses and to give a sense of reassurance. But one place in France, in the Land region, south of Bordeaux, has gone much further in this field. They've actually created a village, essentially, where 120 people suffering from Alzheimer's can live as far as possible the kind of life that they used to have before they got ill. So they're given a lot of freedom to roam, more social contact, and they receive far fewer drugs. Last week, I went to visit this unique project, and I've tried to give you a sense of the atmosphere there because it really is rather special. So like many a French village, there's a main square here at the Alzheimer's village. It's got a fountain. And around the square, under the arches, there's a library, a cafe, restaurant, the hairdressers and a little supermarket. Everything's designed to help residents carry on having as much of their pre-Alzheimer's life as possible. 
Volunteers at a local store are helping the residents, known as villagers, to choose food. So avocados, oranges, and aubergine with uh, cheese, bread. These ladies have just come to the little shop to do their food shopping. This is all for preparing meals back in their, their little house, their shared house. Madeleine and Jocelyne head off back home to one of the 16 houses here in the village. Each of the houses has two care assistants known as maîtresse de maison, or house matrons, or in this case, masters. It's lunchtime, and care assistant Thomas Camus is laying the table, while his co-worker Maïti is putting the finishing touches to the meal. We are preparing turkey with pasta, uh, carotte râpée. Grated carrot. Grated carrot. Yeah, that's a typical yeah. French entree. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Thomas used to work as a care assistant in a more traditional nursing home, but he's adapting well to this very different way of working. In my whole job, I would say we are uh, targeted on time and quality. So we are always uh, like controlling and timing everything we are doing. Now it's like to take care, to be careful, but we are not like stressed by the time and we have to follow their uh, rhythm, their own rhythm. Their own rhythm. Yeah. Ça va, Michel? Michel? So she was just saying she's not very hungry. Yeah. It's typical with this type of disease that uh, the no. Yeah, yeah uh, they often say no, yeah, but, yeah. And, then and then she, she will she's eat. She's going to eat, okay. yeah, like as normal. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I tell you it's more peaceful here and we follow them because uh, so it's time to eat and you eat and they say no and it's kind of traumatic. Yeah, that creates but stress. Not, yeah, stress and, st and not here. No, it's not the philosophy here. Yeah. This is a gated community, but villagers have a five-hectare park in which to ramble whenever they feel like it, so it feels very open. Residents do get lost, but with 120 members of staff and 40 volunteers, there'll always be someone on hand to put them back on track, says village director Pascal Lasserre. We accept the risk. If we see someone stop on a path looking lost, well, staff members or volunteers or family or other villagers, someone will always stop and ask what they're doing and say, OK, let's go together to the village square or whatever. You chat with a person who is sort of blocked because they lost their bearings and they feel secure again. No two houses are identical, but there are landmarks to help residents find their way around. The village is organised into four colour-coded areas or neighbourhoods. <laughs> to encourage as much social interaction as possible, the villagers are kept busy, if they want to be. There are lots of activities that value their life skills and make them feel useful. Music, cooking, art and gardening. <laughs> <laughs> the residents themselves help to create the vegetable garden. Today, they're harvesting courgettes, aubergines and Swiss chard, helped along by two members of staff. 
that looks like a good one, says Jean-Yves, a resident in his 70s, pointing to a large courgette. He came to the village when it opened and has become the, the go-to gardener. I'm a farmer by trade, he says. I had a business with my brother and nephew. I love coming here to be back in the farming world. Look, Yves, shouts Marie-Christiane, a sprightly 84-year-old, pointing to an aubergine, which she finds a bit prickly. It turns out Marie-Christiane speaks some English, having gone to boarding school for a year in the UK when she was a teenager a long time ago. Though it's Spanish, the language that she's emotionally connected to, which keeps coming through. So we're walking across the bridge, over a pond... We often come here to give uh, bread uh, to fish. To feed the fish. fish. Yeah. And are you happy here? Yes. Yes. Because of, uh, I was um, in Lyon, sola. On your mi own? Hija, mi hija me ha dicho, oh, mama, no, you can't stay alone. Your daughter? Yes. She didn't want you to stay on your no. own anymore? There is a, a village and... You you are going there. We know. <laughs> so you said okay. <laughs> okay. What do you like doing the most in the, in the village? What do you enjoy? I enjoy everything. I know I am at the end of my life. Yeah. I have to leave. <laughs> oui. So I take the thing... You take life as it comes. Yes. yes. <laughs> it's not all laughs, though. Alzheimer's can provoke big mood swings, depression, and sometimes aggression. But the village deals with it as far as possible without using medication, says Pascal Lasserre. It's not all peace and love. There can be agitation and aggression. We always intervene, but with a non-pharmacological approach. The fact that the two care assistants are there in the house means they can intervene quickly to isolate the person and deal with the situation. Sometimes people pack their bags and want to leave. And again, the village has an innovative approach to reducing that person's anxiety. Here in the library, there's a bright green wooden train carriage complete with leather seats and what looks like a window inside, but which is in fact a TV screen. Residents are given a train ticket and mount into the carriage with their luggage. Natalie Bonnet, the villager's resident psychologist, then discreetly pushes on the remote control to activate the short film during which the passenger seemingly travels through nearby pine forests. The train helps the person to visualise the idea that they've left somewhere that they wanted to leave and are now somewhere else, she says. During the journey, we'll talk about what's making them anxious. We reassure the person and validate her emotions to soothe the anxiety. I remember one woman who hadn't slept for 24 hours and then fell asleep as soon as she got into the train and only woke up when we arrived in the station. Bonnie acknowledges that medication still has a role to play, but whenever possible, they look for other solutions. Uh, maintenir un rythme de vie. 
Maintaining a daily rhythm is actually a form of treatment, she says. It's very important in countering the desocialization that happens with Alzheimer's and which leads to a drop in self-esteem and social relations. Jérôme, a tall, elegant 59-year-old, sits in the village café and stares out the window. He's losing language and looks a bit lost. He has one of the ten places reserved for people here under the age of 60. His wife Natalie, who travelled down from Paris to visit, is preparing to leave after spending a couple of days in the on-site studio for family members. I did everything I could to get him a spot here, she says, and I'm so happy he did. He used to love walking in nature, and the park here is ideal for him. And he loved the southwest, so the architecture here, well, it's as if we reproduce something he loved. It feels safe. He's in good hands, I know, and he seems happy here. When I leave him, I feel reassured. At the back of the café restaurant, a couple of volunteers are leading a little sing-along. Edith Piaf's La Vie en Rose. Claudine, one of the villagers, murmurs along. When he takes me in his arms, I feel my heart beating. With her eyes closed, her hands crossed over her chest as if to feel that heartbeat, she smiles and looks content. La vie en rose, I mean, it sounds rosy, maybe not all the time, of mm. course, but people do seem to be getting good care there. There's clearly a lot of goodwill, but I imagine that this kind of thing still remains a bit of an experiment. I mean, it must be pretty expensive. Yeah, it costs 28 million euros to build. Mm. It was financed by the département, the local authorities, local administration. But maybe surprisingly, the running costs are in fact only very slightly higher than the average elderly people's home. It costs 65 euros a day per resident rather than the average of 58. Huh. Mm. So maybe this could become the norm across France? Some other local authorities are certainly interested, but a lot is going to depend on the results of the research, which is being carried out by scientists from Bordeaux University. They're evaluating the efficiency of this approach, for example, measuring whether, in fact, this more holistic approach does indeed slow down the deterioration in residents' physical and mental capacities. And this research is what makes the village unique, in fact, because there's a similar project in the Netherlands, which actually inspired this one, but the Dutch have never done any research on it. The first batch of results will, won't be available until around the summer of 2023 and then the final ones in 2025. In the meantime, the village has generated a lot of interest from abroad, uh, but I was told it was mainly from private care homes who will be aiming uh, at wealthy uh, elderly people, whereas the French model is state-supported and it wants to make this kind of innovative care available to everyone regardless of income. Mm. So, uh, you know, a nice idea all about equality of opportunity Sure. Some residents pay as little as 300 euros a month. And oh, wow. the yeah, and the maximum is around 2,000, which is still way under sure. what you would be paying in a private uh, elderly people's home. There are already 200 people on the waiting list, by the way. Jérôme. 
J'ai deux amours. I have two loves. This, of course, is Josephine Baker, mm. the American performer who adopted France and who on November 30th will enter the Pantheon. Well, the mausoleum for, as they say, France's great men. Indeed. <laughs> and she'll be the sixth woman, the first black woman to enter the Pantheon. She was a performer, became the most successful American entertainer working in France in the 20s and 30s. She was also a heroine of the resistance and a civil rights activist. Yeah, yeah. Born 6th of June, 1906 in St. Louis. Missouri. Josephine Baker dropped out of school at the age of 12. She ended up living on her own because her mom disapproved of her dreams of becoming a performer. Mm -hmm. She started out performing on the streets, eventually made her way to New York and vaudeville, chorus lines on Broadway. Doing blackface comedy at local clubs landed her an opportunity to tour in Paris. And she fell in love with the city, decided to move to France. And in 1926, she starred at the Folie Bergère, where she performed her famous Danse Sauvage. Ah, oh, so this is the one where she was wearing only the skirt, mm -hmm. uh, uh, made up of artificial bananas, and with a beaded necklace just yep. uh, scarcely covering her <laughs> naked breasts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, very shocking. And mm. it delighted, though, the audience. I mean, people loved her and her her sort of limber, uninhibited way of dancing. She became a star and she toured all over Europe, but she never had the same success in the United States. Mm -hmm. After an unsuccessful tour on Broadway in 1936, she decided to renounce her U.S. citizenship and become French. <laughs> And then, of course, like everyone, she was impacted by the Second World War. Yeah, mm. yeah. And she used her fame to help her adopted country. She provided information for the French intelligence agency. She was so well known that she could socialize with Germans at embassies or nightclubs, you know, get close to Italians or Vichy bureaucrats and charm information out of them. Mm, a spy, mm -hmm. a bit like France's very own Matahari. Yeah, 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 we talked about on the show. Yeah. Um, and as an entertainer, Josephine Baker had an excuse for moving around Europe, and so she carried information, sometimes apparently writing notes with invisible ink on her sheet music. After the war, she was awarded the Resistance Medal and the Croix de Guerre by the French military, and General Charles de Gaulle named her Legion of Honor. Yeah, and she returned to the stage to the Folie Bergère, taking on more serious material, and she followed the growing civil rights movement in the United States, writing articles about segregation. On tours in the U.S., she refused to perform in front of segregated audiences. Mm -hmm. That's quite something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In 1963, she attended the March on Washington. That's the famous gathering where Martin Luther King gave us a famous I Have a Dream speech. Baker gave a 20-minute speech ahead of the official program, which, by the way, had no women giving <laughs> keynote addresses. Um, she wore her free French uniform with her medals and her Legion of Honor. Oh, so not naked. No, she, she covered no. up. By this time, she was covering up. <laughs> Definitely a different era. Um, and she said, I've walked into the palaces of kings and queens and into the houses of presidents, but I could not walk into a hotel in America and get a cup of coffee. Yes. Yeah, and that made me mad, she said. And when Josephine opens her mouth, they hear it all over the world. So a performer, a resistance hero, a civil rights activist, but she was also a mother uh, of sorts. She adopted 12 children. Yeah, yeah, from all over the world, and she called them her rainbow tribe. They lived with her in her chateau in the Dordogne. Kind of controversial. I mean, she had each of them raised in a different religion. She put them on display. People could visit them in the chateau. Mm -hmm. Kind of a proof of concept that everyone can live together happily. Anyway, so nice she, idea. Nice idea. Yeah, yeah, but maybe complicated as a kid. Um, she died of a brain hemorrhage on April 12th, 1975, after a successful revival show, and more than 20,000 people attended the funeral. 
Her inclusion in the Pantheon next week will be a plaque because her body will remain where it's buried in Monaco. Mm. And for President Emmanuel Macron, Baker is the second woman that he's honoured at the Pantheon mm-hmm. after the politician and Holocaust survivor Simone Veil, who was interred there in 2018. And Macron has talked about Baker as a symbol of reconciliation for France. Yeah, and of course, just a few months before the presidential election, mm-hmm. Everything he does is political and promoting a black woman who started as a burlesque performer to France's ultimate resting place. Well, I guess it says something. Les portes du pénitencier bientôt vont se fermer. Et c'est là que je finirai ma vie. Now I want to turn to translation. I mean, so much is translated here in France. Yeah, we've talked about translation and dubbing, Sarah, haven't we? For films and TV. Yeah, but also books. I mean, the French are huge consumers of translated works. It's not at all an invisible job here, as it might be elsewhere. Translators Mm. often go on TV. You see their names prominently on book covers. Their work did come even more into the spotlight recently, though, around the issue of who was to translate Amanda Gorman. When day comes, we ask ourselves, where can we find light in this never-ending shade? Remember her, the 22-year-old African-American spoken word artist who presented this poem, The Hill We Climb, at Joe Biden's inauguration as U.S. president last year? Somehow we've weathered and witnessed a nation that isn't broken, but simply unfinished. We, the successors of a country and a time where a skinny black girl descended from slaves and raised by a single mother can dream of becoming president only to find herself reciting for one. It made a statement, both the poem and who Gorman is, a young black woman having a prime spot at the inauguration of a U.S. president coming amidst the Black Lives Matter movement. And there was controversy, wasn't there, when publishers here in Europe decided to translate that poem. Yeah, indeed. So Marie-Pierre Kakoma, known as Luz and the Yakuza, a 24-year-old Belgian Congolese performer, she was hired for the French translation. No one reacted to that. But when the Dutch publisher announced that it had chosen an award-winning poet who's white, to translate the poem. A journalist raised questions about why someone from the spoken word movement and unapologetically black was not chosen. The poet ended up deciding not to do it, and the Catalan translator, a white man, also dropped out. I don't think like other, uh, and particularly in France, that everyone can translate uh, everything. I think that sometimes you have to consider other things than just the text. Tiffaine Samoyo is a literature professor here in Paris and a translator herself, and her most recent book is about translation. A lot of the controversy around Amanda Gorman's poem was about the identity of the translator. Why does it matter who's translating the words if the translation is good? But Samoyo told me that this poem in particular goes beyond what's written on the page, and as such, the choice of translator does make a difference. Translating Amanda Gorman is translating uh, her rhythm, her story, and her uh, huge visibility at that moment. It was not just a poem. It was also a whole sign expressing a special message. And uh, when you had to translate her, you translated this whole sign. Right, it was coming out of the Black Lives Matter movement and all that. So I think it was a a responsibility of publishing houses and institutions and countries to uh, reflect 
this uh, special message and address a sign to uh, black communities and uh, black poetry. I also say that it's not a bad thing to share a few experiences with with the author that you translate. But I, I don't say that black people have to translate black people and white people, white people, and women, women, and men, men. It's not my point. I think it's a part of the process. I'm not, a, I'm not as universalist as others are. That comes into conflict often in France, right, mm -hmm. where a lot of people definitely don't agree with you. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Have there been other situations like this that you can think of in, in France where, you know, the issue of it's not just the text, but it's also the context and, and the message that's being sent? I think it's the first time that translation has such a visibility uh, all around the world. So it reveals something. I think the choice made by the French uh, editor to, to choose a, a young woman uh, known as a slammer was because she uh, shared a few characteristics of this message. It's not to say that you have to be black to, to translate a black woman or to be a, a woman to translate a woman, but in special cases you have to consider the whole message. Samoyo's most recent book is called Translation and Violence, and we talked about the tensions inherent in translating one language into another, and the way translation's been used in history, for better or for worse. Translation is to put one thing in another context. That's why you have many ways of transporting it. For instance, you have what we call the domesticating translations. That is to say, you, you transform the text to put it in the norms and uh, values of uh, the receiving culture. Like, for example, like in a, a movie, if somebody has an accent, like in an English movie, if somebody has a French accent, yes. the French version, yes. they'll have an Italian accent? Yes, for okay. instance, it's, uh, it's, it's what we call domesticating. And uh, foreignizing translation that uh, maintain a part of uh, strangeness you know that you're reading a translation because it's not exactly French. And uh, that's a more respectful way of uh, translating. So what, what I think is interesting about translation, you've, you've talked about this, is the idea of sometimes updating, you know, shifting things to make them make more sense today. Can translation be an update sometimes on the original? Yes, it's always an update when you retranslate a, a text. We can take the example, the recent example of a retranslation of uh, Gone with the Wind, the first translation made in the 30s or 40s, the way that black people uh, were talking in French, uh, it was really uh, racist. The dialogue that they had in Gone with the Wind. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that picked the, what we called in France, uh, in the colonial France, Petit Negre. And the new translation erased all those marks of uh, racism in the dialogues. So it's uh, more acceptable for us, for uh, contemporary readers. Is it update the original text also? I mean, the English. Yes, and in fact, the narration is still uh, racist. doesn't change everything. Yeah, I mean, the book remains what it is. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You can't change everything in translation just to update it uh, to our ideology or sensitivity. So you've wrote this book about violence in translation. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you looked into and what that means? All the time is, it is said that translation, it's a dialogue between people and cultures and languages. But translation in itself, it's a violent activity because uh, you can't have exactly the same 
results on the same text in the other language. Violence is a strong word. Yes, because I, I wanted also to remind that translation was a tool during uh, conflicts, particularly uh, in the colonization process. When you want to submit a population, you appropriate their culture or uh, give yours to them. And in both cases, translation is involved, because in one case, you have to translate the corpuses of the population you want to submit, and in the other case, you translate into their language your own text. The classic example is the Bible, right? It gets translated into vernacular languages all over the yes, world. Yes, all over Africa, for instance, and uh, also in the other end, I have an example, for instance, the translation of the Book of Examples by Ibn Khaldun, who was a, a great Islamic scholar. And uh, the French decided to translate only uh, the books in which there were information about the population to help to classify them and to know things about the culture. And all the philosophical parts were not translated because not interesting for the aim of uh, domination. So then French people got to know this text in an abridged and a truncated way and not the whole thing. Yeah, exactly. How is the idea of violence in translation received? Did, did you find pushback? Did you find that yes. people got defensive? Yes. Translators, some uh, agree with me, but some are shocked because for them it's a gesture of love to be at the service of a text or a foreign author, and they need to link their activity to this generosity. Um, I don't think it's always the case because it's a job at another one, too. <laughs> but, I mean, you're not arguing, though, that all translation is inherently... Violent. No, but I think that translation can uh, reveal the misunderstanding and uh, the conflict that exists between two parts, two languages, two cultures, two visions of the world and things like that. But it also contributes to repair what has been separated. So I think it's a great activity and a very important process. And I, I don't want it to be replaced by everyone speaking English all around the world, for instance. Well, that brings an end to this edition of Spotlight on France. The show is a production of Radio France International. You can send any comments or questions to spotlight.france at rfi.fr. Yeah, especially about translation. Yeah, <laughs> don't hesitate. Uh, you can also find us on Instagram at Spotlight on France. You can find previous episodes at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll be back on Thursday, December the 2nd. Bye-bye, Sarah. Bye, Alison. Bye.